0: After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Taylor Sparks, and this time by Eric Eierman, the CEO of CalNano. Eric, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. i uh, happy to be here to talk about... Uh, Talk about SPS and, uh, and some other stuff that we're doing. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm the CEO of, uh, like I said, Cal Nano or California Nanotechnologies. Um, you know, we're a company that does uh, does SPS, basically everything you could think of: tool services, equipment, tooling, uh, and even simulation software. Uh, myself, I have a chemical engineering background, and uh, and yeah started out Calnando as a as an intern,
2: and, and I've worked my way up now to uh, to CEO. So that's pretty awesome. From intern to CEO, you don't hear about that every day. It's kind of interesting me uh, to do this episode because a lot of companies reach out to us and say they say, hey, your audience might be interested in this technology or whatever. But this episode's kind of the other way around. I've been using your company as a service in my role as an academic for quite a bit longer than even the podcast has been around. So We are delighted that we could make this episode work. Now, if folks haven't listened to our previous episode on so-called Spark Plasma Centering, that's episode number 35, maybe pause this, go listen to that, and then come back to this because today's episode is, uh, you know, it's building on what we did, what we talked about last time. So Eric was obviously, he's a listener to the podcast, which we think is fantastic. And he reached out to us and said, hey, there's been some cool advances in moving this technology out of the research space where they're testing and proof of concepting it into actual industry and let us know about some really cool technologies that have been happening since then um, so eric you know in your discussions with me we talked about things like ultra fast high temperature centering. we talked about degas mode fast cooling mode different shapes different waveforms the size and shape of these things getting absolutely wild maybe bringing costs down So we would love to get into all of these topics and more with you on today's episode.
1: Yeah, that's going to be great. There's a lot of new uh, innovations uh, that are happening now in the space.
2: um, And it's going to be uh, great to uh, discuss all of them here. So what's something that you are most excited about uh, in the field of electric field assisted centering?
1: Uh, I would say the, the size and the scale up. Um that's probably the most exciting for for me. Um, just because it has been, you know, traditionally used and seen as an academic tool. Um, and now to see uh companies uh using it to make parts that are, you know, up to two feet in diameter. Um, you know, large plates and now even exploring uh, you know, making tall billets and then you know, on top of that, complex shapes, you know, that that sort of stuff is really uh, really exciting. Um, and I think it's really going to push the technology forward into, uh, into a lot of different applications.
2: Yeah. So one of the times I learned about this was on a a grant from Idaho national labs, where we were helping fabricate some of their materials. And these were high entropy alloys. And they said that they wanted to test them at large sizes. And I assumed that meant like, oh, maybe they're going to go like an inch or two. And we had you guys making for us, God, what were they? 80 millimeter tall and 80 millimeter diameter pucks. That's big, that's like a coffee mug big, like these were way bigger than anything I'd ever made before, and that sort of shocked me so now, for you to tell me that actually there are tools out there that can go up to half a meter right is absolutely mind boggling
1: yeah, yeah, it's really uh it's really exciting, yeah, yeah, I remember us making the, making those parts um yeah, and that, that was pretty that was pretty cool with the with the high entropy alloys um be able to make those parts that size and, and even our system can go up to uh you know about 150 millimeters in diameter or so um so so then to to look at these other people like, like Idaho National Lab now who has the machines that are making you know 600 millimeters of yeah. uh of sizes is, is kind of it's almost mind-boggling but it's a uh, it's it's, really great and to it's see. a big
0: deal too, right? Because it's one thing to just be able to make these, this material with, you know, getting close to its theoretical density and having these great properties in terms of its microstructure. But if you can only make these small little pucks that are only good for characterization, maybe micro hardness testing or, or something like that, um, you know, it doesn't really do any good from an industry perspective. And so actually being able to achieve things of, of greater size starts to bring it into uh, the realm of possibility and into potential applications where those properties can be harnessed.
2: So one question I have with this, yeah, I think back to when I was an intern way like 20 years ago, I was working at Ceramatech and I remember for, I don't even remember what application it was, but they wanted to make this ceramic rod that was an inch in diameter and I think it was nine inches long. And we, you know, obviously the right thing to do is to isostatically press that. But for some reason, they were like, hey, just try and uniaxially press that. And I tried and like we went to, I don't know, what a typical like 100 MPA or something. And we go to unload this thing and it's like, pure powder inside. Like it is not compressed at all. And now obviously I take my ceramic engineering courses and I learn about the die wall friction and how this is going to then reduce the pressure, the compaction pressure of the stuff in the middle of your die dramatically. How are we not getting those same sorts of problems as you scale up to really big components? Or is it the case that there's really big heterogeneity in those components?
1: Yeah. So there's definitely, you're definitely still seeing those issues when you're getting too tall. So when you get that aspect ratio where that height is, is really getting up there um, you're still seeing those same things. I mean, the few of the things that, you know, we've done is is basically be able to control your um, your thermal gradient. So you're, you're getting the uh, you know, you're getting the center to be able to uh, you know, densifier or whichever you know kind of uh, part of the uh, you know longer piece that you're trying to densify get that to one part to densify sooner, get that hotter and then everything else can kind of center um, you know around that. so that's kind of one of the ways that we've been uh, been able to mitigate some of that stuff but talking for that kind of aspect ratio, you know one one inch to nine inch, that's still definitely a, a challenge.
2: Yeah, to be fair, it was a really bad idea at the time. I think it still is a bad idea. But that was an illuminating moment for me to realize that that the geometries are not all possible, right? Because of things like that wall friction. So tell us about CalNano. How did you guys get involved in this space, right? So have you always been a centering company or did you do something else and then move to this?
1: So yeah, so uh, it's a funny story. I mean, About over a decade ago, we just kind of stumbled into uh, into centering into SPS technology. So we're producing a, uh, a nanocrystalline material with one of our other technologies, uh, cryogenic milling, uh, you know, basically a process, you're taking powder and you're you're making nanomaterial could be particle size or it could be actual like nano grained nanocrystalline. Um and we needed a way to consolidate it. So without compromising the microstructure. And so we found SPS it was an effective tool to do that. And so we did, we, we bought an R and D system. It wasn't really until 2016, 2017, that we got really all in on, on SPS. Um, and that's when we bought our big system that we have now that, you know, we've done work with, with you on. Um, and, uh, and like I mentioned, that goes up to about 150 millimeters diameter. Um, and yeah, from there we've just continued to grow the business, grow out the the network of uh, of customers, a lot of R um, and D work, and really now our goal is to um, transition uh, a lot of this R and D work that we're doing into into manufacturing, into commercializing the the technology um, in, in all the different industries that we're working in.
2: That is super cool. So you've, uh, in our discussions, you've told us that they're actually not only getting towards larger, but you've also mentioned that they're starting to move towards other shapes, even maybe net shaping. How on earth do you do that? Because anybody, I'm guessing, who's done SPS has been a cylindrical die, you know, you wrap it with the foil, maybe you put the foil on the top and bottom, you've got a sort of penny shaped sample. How do you do anything other than that?
1: Yeah, well, that's definitely the standard, um, and that's, that's what you primarily work with, especially in anything that's research or you're making test samples. Um, but when you go to more complex shapes, uh, first thing you could do is is tooling. So making, you know, basically getting your tooling CNC'd or specialty made where you can get, you know, dome shapes, you can get lenses, you can get tubes, that sort of thing. Um, as you get more complex, there's new techniques, uh, you know, happening now where they're combining uh, you know, a 3d printing or binder printing, uh, binder jet printing process, um, where you can, uh, you know, make a, either an inverse mold. Um, and then you put that in, you load powder around it. Um, there's, there's methods where you're, um, basically putting in powder and then you're putting a sac- some sort of, sort of sacrificial layer or like a, a separation layer in between, and then powder goes in and then, you know, one side's the, you know, just kind of your excess stuff. And then the other side is your, um, actual part. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work being done in that, in that area. Um, still, still definitely, uh, undevelopmental side, but, um, but it's, it's,
0: it's, promising. These aren't trivial shapes either. I think you sent an article um, by uh, the University of Toulouse in France uh, by Charles Meunier, and they they demonstrate that they're able to use SPS, you know, not only to just fabricate things like spheres or um, sort of polygons and shapes with with lots of different edges and contours, but they even go so far as to manufacture a complete uh, turbine blade using a single SPS. And so, you know, that, that's a non-trivial geometry to, to press in an SPS. And so it's pretty impressive what they're able to actually achieve now uh, in terms of shape complexity with even, you know, somewhat rudimentary and simple methods as just using right sacrificial uh, molds.
1: Yeah. And actually, one of those one of those blades uh, was actually done here at, uh, at Cal Nano. So he came, uh, Charles, he came to, to Cal Nano and, uh, you know, we did it in our, our larger SPS system. And, uh, and I remember him taking, uh, taking it out. So you're, you're basically just, what's going in is you're just entering a, uh, a normal kind of, it looks like it just normal cylindrical part and then you take it out. And I remember him like banging on the part, um, to basically to break off the, the, the sacrificial part of it to then what removes, what comes out is the the final, you know, net shape, uh, you know, turbine blade. So that was definitely, uh, an interesting,
0: uh, thing to see, but it, it worked. It worked really well. And how do you separate awesome. the sacrificial from the the part you're actually interested in densifying, right? You can put some sort of sacrificial form in there, but is there some sort of interlayer between the, the part of interest and the the, the sacrificed or mold?
1: Uh, it, it depends. I think they've come up with a few different methods. Um, I think they're kind of proprietary at this point i know that you know obviously there's different methods that we use now for kind of interface layers like you know foil or, or boron nitride or or those type of kind of lubricant you know separation layers um but that's that's kind of what it is it has to be a thin thin piece that um is is going to allow you to uh you know take apart those those things and like i said even with with that it was still had to be uh broken apart <laughs>
2: So presumably you could use a lot of the same techniques that they have used for hot pressing of complex shapes. Um, the only thing that comes to mind of concern is here you have to have electrical conductivity. Are you just getting that through the die, or is there an attempt to try and influence net shaping with respect to conductivity of the powder itself?
1: Uh, it's it's definitely a combination of both. Um, you know, what first the first thing you want to try, yeah, is just using a kind of things that are done in hot pressing and you know, regardless of connectivity, you just get, um, you just get the, you know, heating through the, um, through the mold and, you know, you still have the advantages of uh, really high heating rates and, um, you know, electric field that's, that's being generated, all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, as the kind of things continue developing, that's definitely something that needs to be, that's going to be kind of worked worked on and looked at is how to keep that, uh, benefit of being able to conduct, you know, we're using conductive powder to get that current going through the entire thing.
0: So one of the innovations that I've become familiar with is the the ability to degas mid process or shortly after the process. What's really the motivation behind that?
1: Uh the idea there is for uh for for powder purity. So if you have any uh, type of material that is, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen in in the SPS process, you know, when you're when you're starting to ramp up, uh you know, you're seeing that uh, that outgassing, that vacuum spike um during uh during the heating process um and the idea with the degas is to be able to 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 do that to heat up your material then be able to remove that punch that top punch um which then allows for the kind of maximum amount of um of of outgassing of of purifying your powder um and then go back to your full you know sintering cycle
2: is it hard to get that, you know, when I've done this, you take a lot of care when you're lining it up initially, it's got to be just so lined up just right. Now you're saying you're going to actually back that punch out and then you're going to reinsert it. Do you run into cracked dies or misalignment issues by doing that?
1: It's, it's definitely possible. It's definitely something that you have to really take care to, to make sure you're, you're all properly aligned. Um, but it, it, if done done well and and you you set yourself up, your're tooling up
2: right, then it, it it can work really well. So is this a new technique that your company is Well, first up, maybe I should back up and say, are you guys selling machines or are you selling a service with machines made by other people? what Where do you guys fit in this dynamic?
1: Sure. So we represent a a company, uh, their name is uh, is Suga. um and they're a Japanese SPS equipment manufacturer. Um, have some of the best people there, kind of some of the originals, um, that developed like the, the, uh, the big tunnel type systems over in Japan have decades, you know, of, of SPS uh, experience. Um, and so we are their North American, uh, distributor. And so we will, we do, we, we essentially sell machines here in, in North America for them. Um, so that's, that's our business in terms of the, on the machine side, um, and then, obviously, our other business is, is toll services, like you know, kind of we've we've, you know, mentioned there that you know we take material from from customers and we will uh, center it for them using uh, using SPS.
2: Okay. So what? Any other? So obviously, one advantage of degas is you get rid of impurities. Are there any other advantages to that mode? And is that novel? How long has that not been around for a while, or is this a new thing? Uh,
1: this is a new one. Yeah, this is a new uh, a new development uh, on what uh, from Suga uh, on their kind of their their lab scale systems. Um, and yeah, I think the difference is being able to um, uh, have it where you can take out kind of in situ during the the centering process and then and then insert it back in.
2: So to do that, the top punch must be fastened in some way to the upper piston. Um, how are you doing that?
1: Uh, Yeah. So it's, it's mounted. Yeah. So it's mounted up to the, uh, to the, to the, the spacer above it. Um, typically with, uh, you know, something like, uh, like bolts, you know, graphite Mm -hmm. bolts, that sort of thing.
2: So another innovation I've seen out of your flyers is this idea of fast cooling mode. That, that definitely captures my attention because everyone talks about like, Oh, SPS, or, you know, it's so amazing. You can center materials in five minutes or in 10 minutes, but there's this huge, but it still takes like two hours for the thing to cool down. And even then you're taking it out at such a high temperature, sometimes it's oxidizing, right? So, and that's with like water cooling running down through the pistons and the ramrods. So how on earth are you guys doing fast cooling mode?
1: So it's uh, it's basically where you're uh, taking usually, you know, inert gas and you're basically blowing it directly onto, onto the molds or onto the punches or any combination of that. Um, and blowing that cold gas is what is allowing you to kind of enhance the, the cool down rate. So it's, it's nothing as fast as say like a quench or, or anything to that extent, but it does have a, uh, kind
2: of can have an appreciable benefit in terms of the, the cool down rate. Some ballpark numbers for us. Like, so for in the past, when I've gone to say 1200 C, it might be one or two hours with a, you know, coffee mug sized die with this cooling. What sort of things could we expect to see? Uh, somewhere on half that, yeah. That's way cool.
1: And it, and it really depends on the, you know, exact geometry of the dye and, you know, obviously there's factors in terms of how fast you can actually cool it. Is your sample going to crack? You know, there's there's all those things to to take into account.
0: And there's huge benefits to cooling faster, right? I mean, that residual heat is going to contribute to grain growth. Uh, which can you know you know offset a lot of the properties that are that are desirable in SPS, right? If you can achieve nanograined um materials early on, but then during the the cool down cycle, those grow to be a little bit bigger. That's not ideal. And so being able to cool faster makes a lot of sense there. And gives it certainly an advantage over maybe hot pressing, which doesn't cool down nearly as fast.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then same thing yeah for hot pressing, you know, comparing it there, obviously the, the heat up rates, you know play factor, so um, definitely has an advantage when it comes to um, you know, keeping those, uh, that nanocrystalline structure.
2: I suppose another way to cool things down faster is just to reduce the amount of mass in your dye. Of course, as you move the thinner and thinner walls, then it gets weaker and these things are already breaking pretty regularly, but I guess you could use stronger materials. I know there's dye materials looking carbide and others. Uh, I'd be curious to see what impact that has on the ability to cool things even faster is using just less thermal mass right around the the component Oh yeah, yeah
1: there's definitely uh been s- developments in terms of uh different different toolings and uh and obviously the the- mater- the tooling that is gonna have the kind of one to expel heat the most is gonna be the one that's you know gonna gonna cool down the fastest.
2: Are there surface treatments you can do to these? So essentially, what you're doing with blowing gas is you're you're adding convection to what used to be a conduction problem, right? Are there surface treatments? So this is the I'm a material scientist and not a mechanical engineer, or maybe I would know the answer to this. But are there also surface treatments you could do to sort of maximize the way that blowing this gas on it pulls heat off of these things?
0: Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there's there's ways basically of um you know kind of aiming the the gas and how you how you know how you have to determine how fast you want to kind of, uh, pressurize it. And, um, you know, like I said, exactly where it's aimed the angle, that sort of thing. So that's all, you know, it, there's a, there's a basic way that you're just basically just, you know, getting gas on there and that's going to speed it up. And then, uh, as we kind of continue to work on the the process, you know, we'll figure out what's going to be the the most effective.
0: So what role has modeling played in, you know, determining how you're going to optimize these things, or or improving your understanding of certain processing conditions, whether that's just in fast cooling alone, or maybe in just the design or operation of these systems in general. So we
1: have uh, we've only kind of uh, I'd say dabbled in modeling. I uh, really haven't had the uh, the the personnel in place to do a lot of work in say COMSOL to make our own thermal modeling, but. We have now teamed up with, uh, with a company called in Gemini over in France. Um, and they've made a, a really simple to use kind of thermal model. Uh, you know, you can see thermal gradients, you can, uh, you know, you can see, uh, tooling stresses, um, but that's, that's definitely a, a big, uh, going to be a big component now on how you can, uh, determine what's, what's happening in your, uh, in your system, um, an example I like to give is we had a, uh, we had a boron carbide project we were working on and uh, we're getting to a temperature and we kept melting out and we just had no idea why. Uh, and, uh, and so then we ran it through the, the simulation and we saw that actually at the center of what, you know, we were reading, obviously you guys know, we're reading at the the die wall, um, you know, just inside and what we're getting at the center was actually just above melting. And when we, brought that temperature down just twenty-five degrees. All of a sudden, no melting. Everything was great. But the and then the the simulation showed exactly that. And so kind of that's how we're looking to use this the the simulation software to to give us a better indication of uh you know how to do those sort of things.
2: That's huge because so much of it is just trial and error. When I've used these tools in the past, it's like, ah, we had a ton of flash let's try and go a little bit lower. Uh, It's a huge pain, especially if it took if took a lot of effort to synthesize the powders to start with. You can't just like blow through twenty grams with trial runs. So being able to simulate that is pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the whole idea. And with this tool, it's it's really cool because it's it's so simple to use. I know that I've talked to other people, um, like you know, kind of in your position in the past, that have using Comsol. It's it's a it's a real hard to set up and you have to have someone that knows the software and, and be able to set up design of experiments and all that. Um, with this one, I mean, you can set it up and, uh, you could set up your experiment in a few minutes and you let it go. And then boom pops out your kind of, you know, nice, uh, nice diagram of thermal gradients and, you know, all that, the the tooling pressures and all that stuff.
2: So another thing listed in your brochure had to do with selectable waveforms. I'm a little more skeptical about this, and I'm curious what you think are some of the big advantages that come from tunable waveforms. So in our last episode, we talked about whether or not, you know, electromigration or anything of that nature is really playing a prominent role. So when it comes to waveform, what sort of advantages do you see with a tunable electrical waveform?
1: I I really see it... uh as a, as a great kind of research tool and exploring that area more, um, you know, because obviously people have explored the, the pulse versus, versus DC. Um, and that's, that's had some effect on materials, uh, certain materials, but not, uh, not as, um, not, not too much, only very uh, specific materials. Um, but then the other wave, you know, like a full wave form that really hasn't been explored as much. So, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to, to certain, um, certain researchers, um, to see what kind of effect that, that has on, on their material, material properties, um, you know, electrical properties, that sort of thing.
2: So in other words, we don't know yet, but now we can at least look right now. We have a way to look.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. That's fair enough. That's the idea. Would you be open to discussing some of the, the challenging SPS cases you've had and how you've overcome them? Even if you can't get into any of the material details, maybe just, you know, trying to use this technology and trying to harness all of its benefits in, in challenging, um, sintering situations.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I can, I can definitely get into, into that. Um, so, you know, one of the projects that we, we worked on, it was with a, a, a metallic, uh, it was a, a metal powder and we were, uh, you know, requested by our customer to be able to uh embed a a wire inside of it um, and that wire had to be uh it was also metallic but it had to be completely isolated from electrically isolated from the the part itself so we had to center powder around it but then keep it so it was um, completely isolated from the uh, from the wire And so that's a pretty significant challenge because any coating you're going to put on there, um, you know, that's that I've kind of be able to find is, is typically with any other sintering process, you're going to go way too hot. You're going to melt. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a mess. And so with SPS, because we were able to, um, sinter at such low temperatures in in comparison to other processes, we were able to put on that coating and effectively, um, you know, isolate that wire, um, from the, uh, from the kind of external, uh, you know, metal body. And so that was a pretty, uh, pretty cool achievement that we, we had with, with SPS that I I can say that I don't think that many other uh, processes could have been able to, uh, to pull off.
0: And did you have to make special dies to orient that wire? Because, you know, in my limited experience with SPS, I do know that trying to include other objects within the the centered uh, body, they can get affected by the the currents and displaced during the operation. Yes, yeah,
1: we had to make a special, special die, special tooling design to be able to, because that wire had to stick out, obviously, and so you're sticking out on, on opposite sides. Um, you had to make sure that was uh, kind of uh, aligned properly. Um, and so we had to we had to make our make special tooling to make sure that stayed in alignment while centering was occurring, um, and and like you said, yeah, the the making sure there was no conductive path from from wire as you're centering to get any hot spotting, any sort of thing like that. Um, so yeah, that was all that was all part of the part of the extensive kind of process we did to develop it.
2: So one of the repeated reasons why I think SPS could be a displacive, you know, innovative technology just is cost. Instead of these really slow ramp up times, now you can get the temperature fast, maybe even get out of temperature quickly. Do you actually have some numbers for us on how much sort of cost or energy savings we're talking about for a company?
1: Yeah, there've been some, there've been some studies done. Um, and obviously, just from firsthand experience, you know, we're talking with some uh, you know, with, with certain programs up to an 80%, um, uh, you know, energy savings when it comes to, um, uh, when it comes to the, the, the SPS versus, versus say a hot press. Um, and then obviously in terms of time, you know, where you, you can get a, uh, you know, a part or, you know, multiple parts if you're doing any type of stacking or, or multi sample, uh, tooling, uh, you can get parts, out and like you said a, a few hours versus a hot press it's going to be 24 hours you know plus uh you're doing anything large so that's that's a big savings as well but uh, uh on the on the energy side the the thing i'd like to i kind of point out is that you know using a hot press you have to heat up a, a whole furnace so you're heating up this massive chamber everything has to be heated up to the same thing versus sps you're heat is all focused on exactly where you want it and you could even really focus it when it comes to like changing your tooling for like a thermal gradient or um focusing on a bond line so really focusing your heat in one specific area uh so so yeah that just kind of picturing that in your head of like you're only heat heating the very small area versus an entire chamber um you can kind of visualize how how, big advantage there
2: yeah Um, Are there any new sensors or probes that you guys are looking at to sort of gather more information from real-time measurements? Uh, Way back in the day, the ones I saw had a pyrometer looking basically at the temperature from the outside. You could drill a little hole and try and look towards the middle. You could put a thermocouple in there. And then a few years later, I saw the German SPS company was actually putting a pyrometer looking straight up. And so you could sort of get an idea of the gradient through the sample. Um, Has there been more innovation in this space?
1: Uh, those are still the primary ways that you're, uh, you're measuring your, your temperature during the process. Um, I think the, the real, uh, kind of innovation is, is when you can use the simulation software in, um, kind of congruence with those. And so, you know, you can, again, maybe you do a first trial, you actually put a thermocouple or something that goes all the way to the center of the part you you run your, your your kind of sacrificial part um and that gives you kind of is approximately what the center temperature is um and then you have an also one that's on the outside measuring temperature um, and then from there you can use that data with the simulation software to then kind of predict how things are going to happen um you know for different things moving forward you know with that with that particular material um but in terms of new sensors or probes, uh, right now, that really hasn't been a, a, a big focus that I've seen uh, in the community.
0: You kind of mentioned that there, there is some trial and error to it. So when you're given a new sample, some client comes to you um, wanting to, to make a new material or, or have that SPS. how much of it is trial and error versus applying your own previous theory and, and sort of knowledge about um, SPS and, and just experience with what sort of failures can occur?
1: Very dependent on exactly what material they're coming to us with. Um, if it's something that's the same or similar to what we've done, then then yeah, we will be able to use kind of previous work uh, when it comes to parameters, temperature, pressure, uh, hold time, that sort of thing, and be able to uh, quickly, typically, get to a point where we're getting to um, to full density or you know whatever properties they're they're looking for. Um, If it's something more uh, kind of nuanced, you know, it's a really novel material, then that will be more trial and error. That will be more um, kind of first, you know, using our SPS in, in, uh, you know, what what we call a manual mode and basically just watching displacement um, and watching the curves as we're increasing temperature. Um, And that will give us an indication of how's displacement going, when does it level off? Do we start to see any sort of expansion, any melting that occurs? And then from there, you know, our kind of expert operators can gauge, you know, in a few runs, you know, how, uh, where kind of the optimal level is, um, you know, after, after analysis of the part.
2: So uh, here's another question for you, Eric. I, I'm curious what sort of fields or industries you feel have been sort of dramatically transformed by the advent of SPS.
1: So a big one is, uh, is high entropy alloys, uh, refractory alloys. So, um, you know, these materials kind of background on, on those, obviously they're, they're metallic materials that are really resistant to to heat and to wear. you know, so they're, they're great for extreme environments, you know, think hypersonics, think space, nuclear applications. Um, But because of the high melting points of them, Um, you know, they're hard to really hard to process, but SPS is proven now to be a great tool kind of, as you mentioned earlier, you know, that we did the work with, uh, with INL, um, to be able to, to center those. And, um, and so it's, it's something that is in the transformation process, I would say, because those kind of materials are are pretty, pretty new. Um, they're still all being developed. Um, but I think that's a big one that is, is going to use SPS for, for a long time to make these kind of next generation, uh, advanced materials.
2: Going forward, what do you think the future holds for this technology? Is it basically done being innovated or is there a lot more to be done?
1: Oh, I think there's a ton more to be done. I think there's a, a lot of, uh, innovation, you know, it comes to the, the complex shapes, um comes to expanding the technology into into manufacturing so um that's going to be a whole new challenge you know when you're as we're getting now um you know there's only a very small amount of uh companies that are using it in in any type of real like high volume manufacturing uh applications right now and so a lot of innovation is going to have to be done there um you know utilizing other uh, industries, other kind of uh, things like that are already be d- being done, like hot, hot press and high volume, but using that to be able to um, to to make these advanced materials with SPS, but also in a in a you know high volume manufacturing um, you know, sort of uh, sort of area.
2: So big thanks to our sponsor for today's episode, Calnano. We've been talking with Eric Ironman. So you've heard how you know Calnano is a leader in this area of SPS manufacturing. They've been in the business of advanced material science and R&D and manufacturing for quite a while. They are the number one provider for R&D manufacturing full services for SPS in North America. Like I said, I've used them in the past before and had really good experiences with them on some of my federal grants that I've been working on. Their programs can range from a few samples to full-scale R&D and production products made with SPS. And notably, I think it's cool, he mentioned that they work with the manufacturer, Suga, and this company, Suga, has released the instrument, the SPS-2000, that has some of these interesting and unique features that we talked about in today's episode, things like degas mode, rapid cooling mode, or the selectable waveform. So I think those are cool things to keep in mind if you're considering purchasing a new unit as well. And then finally, Calnano is not just in the business of selling machines and doing this as a service, but they also sell a lot of the tooling and the consumables that go into using one of these devices. So things like dyes and the components therein. They have a machine shop that allows them to fabricate specialized parts to order. So if you need some of those components, maybe look them up. Our podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com and you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the materials science field. And always, you can read some of the really cool articles that they have published. And it's obviously more than just a journal. They are also really about building community. You can check out the other books, conferences, and related programs that they have for offer.
0: And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of the Materialism Podcast. If you have questions or feedback, please send us emails at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show and want to help us reach more people, consider leaving a review. It helps us improve and it exposes new people to the show. Finally, check out our Instagram page at materialism.podcast and connect with us to let us know what new material you'd like to hear about next. Before we go, we'd like to give a shout out to Alphabot and Colabyte for making the music for the podcast. They both make a ton of really cool synthwave music, so go check them out on Spotify and YouTube. Catch you next time. Till next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton. The makers of tools. The captors of lightning. The architect. The engineer. The musician are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.